So last week we introduced our Lenten sermon series. It's called Lead Us Not Into Consumption. And Pastor Joy led us through the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, that hymn that lauds Jesus as the one who empties himself, who places others first, who is obedient to death, even death on a cross. She encouraged us to admit that the way of Jesus is really an affront to the waters that we were born in and that we continue to swim in, the waters of a consumer society where we're inundated with advertisements that tell us what we want, tell us that we deserve it, and that it's not that hard for us to attain it. This is the culture that you and I face every single day. And it's maybe even heightened, I think, in, in suburban America. And the way of Jesus is confrontational to our local economy. To come to church, which you've done today, good job on that, by the way, it's almost like an act of resistance in this consumerist culture. And we want to encourage this act of resistance today. So throughout this Lenten season, we're going to focus on Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, inviting him to show us his way so that we can follow in it as well. Each week, we're going to be looking at the Jesus way and picking out an element that confronts our consumerist tendencies and hopefully opens a path to more faithfully follow Jesus. And for some here today, maybe follow him for the very first time. So we begin this morning with Jesus' journey into the wilderness. It's often called the temptation of Jesus. We find it in Matthew chapter 4, a text that's often preached at the beginning of Lent. I've been receiving teaching on this passage since I was a little guy in Sunday school class. And it was typically imparted to me in, in such a way that the takeaway was this. Jesus resisted temptation, so you can too. You see, Jesus was tempted, and he resisted it, which means you can resist temptation. And while I understand the sentiment and that this might be effective for children, and that there is some truth in that, this is not a great message, right? Because first of all, we're sinful. Second, we're not God like Jesus was. And we give in to temptations all the time. It's part of being human. Now perhaps Jesus' resistance of temptation is a model for us so we don't give up at least trying to resist temptation. But it's hard for me to imagine that Jesus suffered the way he did in the wilderness simply for that. Now I actually think that temptation is kind of a secondary theme in this text. It probably shouldn't be called the temptation of Jesus, and it should be more aptly called the wilderness way of Jesus. How is Jesus in the wilderness? Did Jesus really have to go into the desert and fast for 40 days? Of course not. He's God. He doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. So why does he? I think he's modeling something for us. Something that directly affects our consumerist tendencies. You see, Jesus could have taken shortcuts. There had to be another way to confront Satan than to endure 40 days of of fasting in the desert. He could have taken any of Satan's easy ways out that are offered to him, but he doesn't. So as I study this narrative, I'm convicted by how it confronts our love of shortcuts over the faithful wilderness way of Jesus. Yes, let's admit this morning that we are tempted a great deal by shortcuts. Is that okay to admit this morning? You and me both? 
I want to buy the tomato plant that is ready to go rather than go through all the hard work of planting it on my own because when I plant it on my own, it doesn't turn out the way I want to anyways. I see a YouTube video that will teach me all the guitar scales in five minutes and I'll be much better at guitar and I want to I, I, I watch that. I see weight loss pills that promise great results and I'll be honest, I'm tempted. I'm always looking for apps on my phone that's going to up my productivity and make things easier for me. Even in my spiritual life, I look for shortcuts. I go to a conference hoping that it's going to jumpstart my faith. I look for the right devotional, the right curriculum, the quickest way to experience God. Now, I'm usually able to, to see through these cheap shortcuts before purchasing them. <laughs> but man, they're tempting. I read an article about a marathon runner who was running in a, in a prominent marathon and decided to stop for lunch during the race and then got in a cab and went towards a wooded area and, and, and came out and hopped back in the race and finished a personal best time. Now, of course, he only ran nine miles of the marathon and he didn't get caught until months after the race. Now, you might think that, what a horrible guy this is, what a horrible thing to do but when I put myself in his shoes, I'm sort of like, that's how I would want to run a marathon, right? That sounds like a pretty good way to run a marathon. This guy sounds pretty smart to me. I admit that shortcuts are tempting. But the way of Jesus in the wilderness is a patient, hopeful period of waiting and wanting and not taking those shortcuts. At the beginning of this passage, in, in, in Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This comes directly after Jesus' baptism, by the way, sort of a high point in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Spirit then leads him into the wilderness. And it's easy to read this as if God has some divine obstacle course that's set up for Jesus in the wilderness with the devil at the center. But this is not really the case. In the Jewish world, the concept of going in the, into the wilderness didn't have a, a negative connotation in the way that we might hear it. Yes, it certainly meant a, a lack of resources, no food or water. It meant trials and difficulties and harsh conditions. But it was actually seen as a positive place because time in the wilderness was seen by them as a necessary time to mature one's faith. And I think that's really the point of this narrative. This narrative is not a guidebook on how to get an A-plus on the temptation test. But I think it's a model, a motif, a paradigm for the only way to a mature and maturing faith. A mature faith is cultivated in the wilderness. Shortcuts out of the wilderness, what they actually do is they, they stunt our faith and they leave us immature. And so that's our focus today, choosing the wilderness way of Jesus over the shortcuts that are so readily presented to us. So I want to point out four ways, four ways this morning in which the wilderness way cultivates a maturing faith. First is this, a maturing faith recognizes who Satan is and what he's trying to do. So get the image of a, a pointy horned dwarf out of your mind this morning, the original readers of this text had an image of Satan from his very name in the original languages. The Hebrew word for Satan means oppressor, 
And the Greek word means accuser, or maybe even better, splitter. Splitter. So if we reread verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the splitter. Now, I admit we don't, we don't preach a lot about the evil one here in this church, Satan, the splitter, mostly because I don't want to give him any more credence or airtime or credit than he deserves. But I do want you to hear this today. You have a God who loves you and is working constantly for your good. And so, too, we have a common enemy whose job it is to split you from the presence of God. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to split us from God's presence, from intimacy with God. It's in his very name. I don't say this to scare you this morning or to give you any misgivings. I want you to know that God is victorious over our enemy through the, the, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The ending of the story has already been spoiled. God wins, and Satan has no chance. But while we're living our lives here on earth, now as the church of Jesus Christ, I do want you to know that there's an active force that's seeking to split you from the presence of God. He's working to to drive a wedge between you and God, to pull you away from intimacy with God. The splitter attempts to do this in our lives in some pretty obvious ways. I know I've observed them in my own life. He tries to get us busy. Great way to split us from the presence of God. Convincing us that what we do is more important than who we're doing it for. Sometimes he pulls us into comparing ourselves to others, which takes our focus away from God. And all too often, the splitter offers us tempting shortcuts to try and keep our faith immature, growing inward rather than toward God. This leads me to the next way in which the wilderness way leads to a mature faith. Second, a maturing faith carefully chooses which voice they're listening to. Carefully chooses which voice they're listening to. Here we get to the real heart of this passage, Satan's three temptations of Jesus. Our text tells us that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and was famished. I would think so, right? And this is where the splitter enters, at this point of abject weakness and need. His first temptation was to encourage Jesus to turn the desert stones, which were probably all around him, into bread. And surely this is really, really tempting on a human level, right? Because we know that Jesus was dangerously hungry at this point. But think about what Satan's actually doing here. Think about what he's actually saying. He's saying, if you're hungry, you should be able to eat whatever you want. Now, if there was ever a slogan for consumerist culture, that's it, isn't it? Eat what you want to eat. You deserve it. The voice of the splitter says, consumption is good. But Jesus doesn't listen to this voice. He instead turns to the voice of God from Scripture. He cites Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. One does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here, Jesus appeals to Israel's history um, the people who are in a wilderness much like Jesus is in right now. 
And their hunger taught them obedience. It taught them priority. And, and, and God provided for them with, with this thing called manna, which is this strange food that literally fell from the sky once a day. For Jesus, obedience to his heavenly Father takes priority over immediate self-gratification and even over the apparent real need for food, right? A shortcut certainly would have filled his stomach, which I'm sure he wanted at that point, but it was going to split him from the work of the Father in the wilderness. So Jesus chose instead God's voice, what God says. Likewise, same kind of model in the second temptation. When Satan brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, he says, throw yourself down. Scripture tells us that the angels are going to catch you. It'll be a great trick, right? It'll show everybody around here who you are. Notice how crafty the splitter is. He even uses God's scripture in an incorrect way. He tries to twist God's very own words from Psalm 91. And he's essentially saying here, do what you want to do. You'll be fine. Do what you want to do. You'll be fine. This is the temptation of autonomy. I have the freedom to do what I want to do. Again, a message that we hear all too often. Jesus again chooses God's voice over Satan's voice. From Exodus 17, he quotes, Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Don't put, this is not the kind of relationship I'm supposed to have with God, putting him to the test. That would be a fundamental breakdown of that relationship with God. And the third temptation, last one, is very tempting, is very telling. Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he lays out before him all the kingdoms of the world, an incredible view. And Satan says, just bow down and worship me just this once and all of this will be yours. This is like the ultimate shortcut for Jesus. Jesus can have it all right now. No death. No cross, no suffering. He doesn't have to wait. He can just have it. And here Satan says, have what you want right now. Don't wait. Again, a message we hear all the time. This is the lie of possession. If you want something, you only need to reach out and possess it. That's all you need to do. But again... Jesus chooses God's voice over Satan's, and he rebukes the splitter, saying, get behind me, because Deuteronomy 6.13 says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus doesn't give in to the shortcut. He chooses the mature way of the wilderness, and he refuses to be split from the presence of his heavenly Father. How is he able to choose God's voice? Well, that's our third point. Third, a maturing faith feeds on God's word. A maturing faith feeds on God's word. Jesus has scripture at the ready, doesn't he? So that he can test the words that he's hearing from the splitter against the word of God. Now, there are many, many ways to hear God's voice, but none is more timeless and faithful than God's word in scripture. And I want to be careful to state that knowledge of Scripture does not make somebody more lovable to God or, or a more faithful Christian necessarily, but it is one of the hallmarks of a maturing faith uh, that, that you would be intimately engaged with Scripture on a regular basis. Here's how I like to think of it uh, if you're a visual learner. I'm not great at memorizing Scripture. 
Um, I'm not really great at recalling chapters and verses. I can kind of get close, but I'm not great at that. And I can get jealous of some of you who are better at that than, than I am. But I am regularly, daily in God's word, both through my own devotional life, my, my sermon preparation, through, through podcasts and devotional books and different avenues. And when I do this, I like to think about, like there's a warehouse in the back of my mind, a warehouse where every single time I go to God's word, I feed on God's word, what I'm doing is I'm stocking those shelves. The daily action of of being in God's word stocks the shelves, and then when I find myself in a wilderness place, when I'm hungry and I'm tired and I'm worn out, I start to hear the splitter speaking to me, And, and, and guess what? I have somewhere to go. I have a warehouse that I can go to. I have resources that I can pull off the shelf. I can say, no, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I can go, no, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I can say, I I know I'm hearing this, but no, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I've got a warehouse stocked with God's word, with his promises and his wisdom and his truths to draw upon. Our ability to to draw upon God's word will help us to resist the shortcuts of our consumer culture and choose the mature way of Jesus instead. Which leads me to our last and I think very hopeful point today. Fourth, a maturing faith still ends in God helping us. Verse 11 says, then, then the devil, the splitter, left Jesus, and suddenly angels came and waited on him, or I think even better, attended to him. I find it remarkably encouraged that Jesus, who was God, by the way, was attended to by angels at the end of this time in the wilderness. I'm encouraged by this because it serves as a reminder that God is going to provide for us. It's safe to assume that God's angels provided Jesus with food and water because that's what he needed, that they healed his body and restored his soul. I'm also encouraged by this this verse because Jesus needed help and he was God and I am clearly not God and I feel like I need a lot of help. So if we resist the shortcuts to, to maturity in the name of Jesus, I believe that God will send angels to attend to us as well, to care for us, to provide for us. You see, the end of a wilderness journey always ends not with a victory lap for the winner, right? It always ends with a bedraggled child of God getting the help that they need. It still ends with God being God and caring for us. I'm encouraged that God's angels are at the end of the wilderness because I know I need their help. So what's the lesson for us today when we put this all together? It's that if we take seriously the call to follow Jesus, it's going to be a wilderness way, not a way of shortcuts. It's going to be a process that matures our faith. The splitter uses our consumerist culture to tell us perpetually that we can eat what we want, that we can do what we want, that we can have what we want and we can do it all right now. The splitter tells us that we can have a marathon bib and then we can eat a nice lunch and we can have a lengthy cushy cab ride 
and then we can have the finish line experience, and then he convinces us that we actually finished the marathon. But please, let's not call this the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is a marathon runner who wants to give up at every single mile marker, but is propelled by the voice of God and finishes exhausted and hungry and thirsty and is attended to at the completion. But in the midst of that trial, guess what? They become a true marathon runner. There are no shortcuts to becoming a marathon runner, and there are no shortcuts to becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ. My friends, this morning I know that some of you would probably identify, if you were being honest, that you're in a wilderness place right now. You're not sure why the Holy Spirit has led you there. It feels like more than you can reasonably handle, and you are desperately tempted by any shortcut that comes your way. Take heart. God is using this to mature your faith, and he is surely speaking, and he will provide for you. Just continue to be faithful. Some of you aren't in a wilderness place right now, and that's great, but let me tell you something that is absolutely unequivocally true. You will be, sooner rather than later. So wherever you are, feed on God's word daily, and then condition your heart to choose the wilderness way of Jesus over quick fixes. Quick fixes are not going to lead you to a mature faith. To close today, I want to give you a tool that's been very helpful for me. It's a simple tool. It's one you can do anywhere, anytime, if you have just a little time of silence. It's called breathing prayer. An ancient practice that's been so helpful for so many. And the concept is really simple. Um, I put a few passages of scripture here on the screen for you that could become breathing prayers for you this morning. Each scripture, as you'll see, has, has two stanzas. One for when you breathe in and one for when you breathe out. So my prayer for months has been the top one. That's where I've been drawn. And in my own devotional life, my own time in God's word, I find myself praying, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, and then breathing out my glory, the lifter of my head. Maybe you're drawn to the second one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or this wonderful one from 1 Samuel, speak, O Lord, your servant hears. There are many different ways throughout Scripture to to pray through this, and this is a way of keeping God's Word close to us, to feeding on it daily. And what I often do up in my office, I'll start my day with just two minutes of silence and meditation and breathing prayer, and I'll say this quietly in my own mind as I breathe for two minutes. Just repeat it over and over again, long enough until those words feel like they're being absorbed into my very heart. Because that's my desire, is that when I end up in the wilderness in my life, that I'd have Scripture as close to me as breathing. Right? So I'm going to take just two minutes 
It might seem like an eternity for those of you who are not used to quiet in your life. For those of you who are used to quiet and stillness, it might not feel long enough. But choose one of these. Maybe there's another scripture verse that you have in your heart and you want to turn that into a a breathing prayer. But choose one of these. And I'd invite you to just start breathing deeply in and out and praying this breathing prayer. And I'll close us in just a minute.